Thank you very much. It's a real joy to be here. Uh, first time I've been in this uh, new facility. Uh, preached at a previous location. <clears throat> it's great to be here. It's wonderful to be able to call, know your pastor. He's a great personal friend to me and a real encouragement and uh, really enjoy his fellowship. We generally have lunch once a week and I tell him what he should do. And <laughs> so if there's anything goes wrong in this church, you know he's followed my advice right there, you know. That's right. I'd like to uh, turn, uh, call your attention this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you want to look in your Bibles, if you have that, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'd like to begin reading the passage at verse 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1. Paul says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same uh, spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by destroying angels. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time we have together to look into your word, and we ask that the Spirit of God might uh, direct our hearts and thoughts on this text of Scripture, and that he might work in each one of our hearts to cause us to be obedient and submissive and to be helped by the truths that are here contained in the Word of God. Thank you for the privilege of knowing Christ our Savior, of being servants of Christ in this life. Thank you, Father, for these good people. We ask your blessing upon each one of us now as we look into your Word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I just read uh, chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, but actually chapters 8 through 10 of 1 Corinthians are actually a one unit dealing with a single idea, a single thought that Paul is addressing in the church at Corinth. And uh, the problem is idolatry. Remember what Paul says in verse 14, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. And that's really Paul's take-home message to the church 
at Corinth. We know that the worship of idols, of false gods, was quite common in Corinth at the time Paul was there traveling and on his missionary journeys. In the physical remains of the city that we find today, if you were to go there, archaeologists have discovered uh, 26 temples or sacred places where the people of Corinth dedicated worship to pagan gods and goddesses. Most of the population at Corinth, most people in Corinth were worshiping some sort of false god, some sort of idol. You might think that when a person uh, in the city of Corinth came to Christ, became a Christian, that they would no longer, uh, no longer associate themselves with this worship of idols, with these false gods. But these new converts in Corinth and throughout the ancient world, in the Roman world, they faced a difficult struggle. These Gentiles had been attending these pagan temples all their lives. They had gone there all the time. They were the centers of civic life. They were the centers of social life. And so all kinds of ceremonies, all kinds of events were held in these temples. Every kind of celebration that you can imagine. People went there as often as we go to a sporting event or to a concert or a play. If you wanted to have a birthday party, say, for your child in ancient Corinth, you know, you couldn't go to Chuck E. Cheese's. Uh, you couldn't go to McDonald's. Where did you go? You went to the temple. Uh, we actually have preserved to our day uh, birthday invitations from this first century where people are inviting their friends, inviting their family to a birthday celebration. One of these is for a one-year-old child, inviting friends and family to come to the Temple of Serapis and there uh, have this birthday celebration. And as part of that, you would engage in the worship of the god Serapis there at Corinth, one of the false gods. Well, at every one of these temples, one of these celebrations, even if you just went there for a social event, as I said, there was always the worship of this pagan god. There was always some kind of celebration involving food that would be sacrificed to this god first, and then you would eat it in conjunction with a meal or something like that. There was no way around it. If you went to the temple, you were involved in the worship of false gods, of pagan gods. And for that reason, Paul forbids the Corinthians from going to Corinth. You can no longer go to these Corinthian temples any longer. But that's a problem. <laughs> they had been going to these temples all their lives, and now Paul says no more. But their friends went to these temples. Their mothers, their fathers, their sisters, and their brothers, they were still going to these events at the temples. How were these Christians supposed to just suddenly give up that kind of thing? How were they suddenly no longer to go? So it's, it's easy to understand how that would be a struggle for the Christians at Corinth, how difficult that would be to give up going to these temples when they had been doing this all their lives. It would be a great temptation. And it was very tempting, you know, just to go along with the family. They're inviting you to go back to the temple and so forth. Uh, I was saved as an adult when I was uh, a little older. I'm not that old, as you can see, but, you know. <laughs> I was in my 20s when I was saved. And 
for those of us who are saved uh, you know, later in life, sometimes that can be a real struggle uh, to say no to friends. You have these friends, you have these family members, and you get saved, and you're, they're, they're used to you going with them to places and events and doing things. And that can be a real difficulty to say no to these sinful places, to say no to these sinful things that your family and friends are still doing, and they want you to participate in those kinds of things. There's a real temptation to return to one's former life and to go back into those kinds of things, even though we know the Bible would tell us we shouldn't. But we all face temptations, whether we're young, whether we're old, whether we're a new believer, you know, or a long-time believer, we all struggle with sin. We all have difficulties with the world, the flesh, and the devil. They're fighting against us. And so we can easily become discouraged in our Christian walk, whether we're a new believer or a long-time believer. You know, we can throw up our hands sometimes and say, what's the use? You know, I know I should not yield to temptation. Uh, I know I should not do that sinful thing. I know... I should not go to that sinful place. I know I shouldn't watch that sinful thing. I know I shouldn't associate with those people. But I always seem to fail. The pull of sin is strong, and we find it difficult, you know, to resist these kinds of things. What do we do? Is there any hope for us in these struggles? Well, Paul has some very encouraging words for us in the text we read this morning. Notice again verse 13. I want to concentrate on this morning. Paul says, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Our text this morning promises God's gracious help in times of temptation. So I'd like to look at verse 13 this morning in a little more detail, look at it a little more closely. And the first thing I want us to notice about verse 13 is what I would call the nature of temptation. Paul explains for us a little bit the nature of temptation. Paul says, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. The word translated temptation, the Greek word perosmos here, and the verb tempted, the Greek word perazo, can have either the meaning of temptation or trial. They can have the meaning, the, the verb and the noun, they can have the meaning of temptation, that is, an enticement to sin. We know what that is, an enticement to sin. But the same words can have the meaning of a trial, an outward test. An enticement to sin is an attraction to sin. It comes through something we see or something we hear. It comes through some person or something, some enticement to sin. Whereas a trial we sort of look at as a difficult circumstance, some difficult problem that just overtakes us, that seizes us, that comes upon us. It might be 
a serious illness that we suddenly find out about. It might be the loss of a job. It might be something else that simply comes into our lives. But my point here is that in the original Greek here, the same word, the same word group that's translated trial also means temptation. Trial and temptation are really one and the same thing in the original languages here. And we can see this, uh, these two meanings pretty clearly if we looked at another passage. I'm just going to turn over for a moment. If you hold your place here, I'll, I'll read. But James chapter 1 is very helpful here in trying to understand these two ideas in trial and temptation, that they're related, they're very close, they're really the same word. Here's James, and James chapter 1, he says something very interesting in verse 2. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials. Consider it pure joy when you face trials. That's the same word, perosmos, is translated temptation. Consider it pure joy when you face trials, perosmos, of many kinds. Then in verse 13 he says, When tempted, there's the verb perazo, translated tempted, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt perazo anyone. James is saying here that God does not tempt us in the sense of enticing us to sin. God does not entice us to sin, but he does put into our lives, he does send into our lives various trials in order to mature us. In fact, our whole earthly life after we come to Christ could be looked upon as one great trial. We, we know this world is not really our home. And we lament the sinful conditions we find, the, sin, the effects of sin in our world. We, we, we lament the disease and distress and destruction. But for the growing of Christian character, this world is a good place. <laughs> it's the place God has chosen so that we can develop character and holiness by resisting sin and enduring trials. This world is a proper training ground for us. These trials I'm talking about are not just major tragedies, but they're, they're the everyday stresses of life, the decisions we have to make about right and wrong every day of our lives. We have to choose between good and evil. In reality, what I'm trying to say here is that temptations and trials are two sides of the same coin. They always go together. They're, they're really inseparable. Every temptation is ultimately a trial, and every trial brings a temptation. Let me say that again. Every temptation is ultimately a trial, and every trial that comes into our life brings a temptation. A good example of that is just a look at the life of our Lord when in his early part of his ministry, remember Matthew chapter 4, he was tempted by the devil in the desert, you remember? And Matthew 4.1 says this, it says that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. From Satan's perspective, that was a temptation to get Jesus to sin. But from God's perspective, remember the text says, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert. 
From God's perspective, it was a trial. It was an opportunity so that the holy character of our Savior could be demonstrated. So that same event was both a trial and a temptation. You see, God may send a trial for the purpose of strengthening us. And every trial is ultimately for our good and for God's glory. But within that trial, within that, there is always the temptation for this Christian to sin by disobedience, by responding disobediently. From God's perspective, every event is an opportunity designed for our good, a trial that can ultimately mature us. If I'm looking back here at James here, remember he says, consider it pure joy whenever we face trials of many kinds, he says. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials. He goes on to say in verses 3 and 4, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance or endurance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. God will not allow a trial or temptation in your life if it does not have the capability of moving you, of moving us toward Christ-likeness. God does not tempt us to make us sin. But from Satan's perspective, a trial has potential for evil that will spiritually weaken us. But we have to constantly remind ourselves that whatever trial or temptation we face, it's been permitted by our Heavenly Father for our ultimate good. Some Christians never gain this twofold perspective. They only see the negative side of temptation, and they miss the opportunity for spiritual growth, which can only come as we overcome temptation. Seeing only the negative side of temptation defeats them and discourages and in parts accounts sometimes for our failure to overcome. I mean, look at the example of Job, Job in the Old Testament, the famous character, whom God sent the most severe trial. Remember, God permitted Job to be tested by Satan. God sent Job the most severe trial. Job lost his possessions, remember. He lost his family, and finally he lost his health. And inherent within that trial, which God sent to Job, was the constant temptation for Job to sin by blaming God. That was always out there. Blame God. In fact, you remember the advice of Job's lovely wife. She said, curse God and die. You know. In the midst of every trial and temptation, it's easy for us to say, God, why are you allowing this to happen to me? But remember what Paul said. But who are you, old man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Romans 9.20. No, we have to always look for the good in every trial and every temptation that comes into our lives. We must ask ourselves, How can I become a better Christian through this experience? How can I become more godly through this experience from, from a purely human perspective seems so negative and seems so difficult. 
Well, looking, I'm going to look back here at our text here, 1 Corinthians 10.13. We observe here that Paul says, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. We observe that Paul tells us that these trials and temptations are what he calls common to man. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. Paul means that the temptations faced by the Corinthians are not unique to them. They're not special. The trials and temptations we face every day of our lives are not different from what other believers have faced and are facing. Paul says in the normal course of life, these trials and temptations, they seize us, he says, or they overtake us, as many translations render it. And as, as, you, as you well know, <laughs> friends, it's easy to be discouraged in the Christian life. We, we know we should live for Christ. We know we should say no to sin. But it's easy to excuse our failures when these things sort of overtake us. It's easy to say, this is too hard. My situation is different. You know, I have struggles that no one else has faced. Um, the trials in my life, they're like, they're just too difficult to endure. No, no one has had to do this. You, you just don't understand my situation. But Paul says that's not true. Other believers have faced the same kinds of things that we are enduring and that we will have to endure. And they have come through by God's grace. They have been victorious by God's help. And because God has brought them through, God will bring us through too with his help. We can de depend upon the same kind of grace that others have had to resist sin, to resist temptation. We can do it by God's help. You can, my friend, by God's help. Well, how do we do that? How do we overcome the sins and temptations and the trials how do we endure these things? What are the answers? Does God have any help for us? Well, we looked at the nature of temptation. Let's turn to the latter part of verse 13. And we see God's provision in temptation. God's provision. Paul says, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. In the normal temptations of life, Paul says, God can be counted on to help us. Because, Paul says, God is faithful. Now, Paul specifies two ways in which God helps us. The first way, Paul says, is... God will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. God has pledged himself not to allow us to be tempted beyond anything that we can endure. I think there are two things that we can uh, draw from this promise, two conclusions. One is we can conclude that sin can be resisted. Now, obviously, you know, some temptations are easier to resist than others. As we develop a pattern in our lives 
of saying no to sin, of what the Bible calls mortifying or putting sin to death, putting to death the misdeeds of the body. If we do that, then some attractions become less attractive than they once did. They don't present as much difficulty as we grow in our lives. I, I take no pleasure in saying I used to smoke cigarettes before I was saved. Um, I don't want to violate verse 12 here where Paul says, uh, if you think you're standing firm, be careful. But really, you know, cigarettes aren't a problem for me today. <laughs> I don't have any desire. It's just not an attraction. I hate them. You know, I wish they were just banned everywhere. You know, I, just, you know, I, don't, I don't want to be around cigarette smoke at all. I just wish I could say that about all areas of my life. <laughs> I wish I could say I felt the way I feel about cigarettes to all areas of sin, you know? And in fact, as we grow in our Christian experience, as we grow in areas of maturity, we gain increasing victory over sin, the Bible teaches us. We gain increasing victory over temptations. But we, we grow to hate sin more and more. That's part of spiritual maturity. That's what the Bible calls sanctification. But we cannot deceive ourselves. The Christian life is a warfare against sin. It's a constant and lifetime battle against sin. We have to battle sin every day, and we're never going to have total victory this side of heaven. So if it's true that God will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can endure, then we conclude, can conclude, one, that temptations can be resisted, and two, that yielding to temptation is not excusable. You know, often we protest and say a certain temptation is beyond our power to resist, and we try to excuse ourselves, you know, we try to rationalize our failure. We just say this is just too difficult. We wallow in our rationalizations. Remember what happened to Adam and Eve. Adam sinned, but he told God, it was the woman you gave me, you know, it's her fault. Adam was tempted and he tried to blame God. He tried to blame the woman, you know. But God allows Christians no chance, no place to plead this kind of case. Our cases, our sins, our yieldings are not unique, they're not special. God knows all about us. He knows our future. He knows what's possible. When we yield to sin, we do so because we ultimately want to. We desire it. So our text says that no matter how severe the temptation may be, we have to remember that God is faithful. And he has promised to limit the temptation to what we can endure, what we can bear at that moment. We have no excuse. You have no excuse. God is committed to your spiritual growth. God is seeking your spiritual maturity. And he will not permit a trial that you cannot handle. So first of all, God helps us by not allowing us to be tempted beyond what he knows we can bear in our present spiritual state, our present spiritual condition. Second, God helps us, Paul says, by providing a way out, a way out so that we can stand up under the temptation. 
God will provide a holy alternative to any sinful choice that you face. Our text says, notice, God will also provide a way out so that you may be able to stand up under it. God will provide a way out so that you may be able to stand up under it. When you think about that, that seems like a contradiction a little bit. A way out so that you can stand up under it. Obviously, Paul means there is a way out, there is an end to whatever temptation or trial we may undergo, but that has to be seen from the divine perspective. God has a way of escape so that we will not sin, but it's not generally an escape from the, from the experience itself, necessarily. We're always looking for some quick solution, but that's usually not how God works things. I think most often God gives us a way of escape or way out by enabling us to endure the temptation until it's removed. He gives us grace to endure that trial, to endure that temptation until it's removed. James 1.12 does not say, blessed is the man who resists a trial, but it says, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. Well, how do we discover this way out? How do we get this way of escape? How can we resist the temptation and make the godly choice that we know we should make? How do we gain strength in times of trial and temptation in order to respond the way we should? Well, help usually doesn't come by some instantaneous supernatural intervention. I believe we overcome, I believe we are able to endure by our use of what is commonly called the means of grace. God helps us by giving us various means, various ways. These are sometimes called by theologians the means of grace. God gives us grace. That is, God helps us in times of trial and temptation, but he does so by various means. The means that he primarily uses are three. The word of God, prayer, and the fellowship of God's people. God's plan for us, God's means for us to overcome trials and temptations are primarily by our use and response to the Word of God, prayer, and the fellowship of God's people. What do I mean? Well, God has given us His Word, and that Word helps us. The Word of God is a means to overcome trials and temptation. We study the Word of God. We read the Word of God. And as we read it, we find in its pages strength. We find encouragement there. We read about other saints and how God has helped them and given them grace. We read promises. We learn in one of Paul's greatest trials, God said to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you. And therefore we learn that God's grace will be sufficient for us. We, we read in God's word that we should avoid certain places. We should avoid certain persons. We should avoid certain things altogether. 
so we won't fall into temptation. We memorize certain verses so that we can be shielded from the flaming arrows of the evil one. We meditate on the Word. We think about the Word. We apply the Word to our daily situation so that we will be stronger and able to resist sin. Prayer is another means. Another means God uses for resisting trials, enduring trials and resisting temptation. We pray for strength. We pray for enablement so that we can withstand the onslaughts of the devil. We watch and pray, as Jesus said in Matthew 26, 41, so that we will not fall into temptation. If we fail to pray, we're going to be easy pickings for the devil. John Owen said, if we do not abide in prayer, we will abide in temptation. If we don't pray, my friends, we're sure to fail. You can't succeed in your Christian life without prayer. You can't resist temptations. You can't endure trials without prayer. Finally, the fellowship of God's people is another means that God uses to help us in seasons of trial, in times of temptation. The fellowship we enjoy here and you enjoy here in this church is of great help. It's of tremendous help. We, we are encouraged by our fellow believers as we try to apply the lessons we learn in this place. You come here to sing about God and His grace, and that's encouraging. We're, strengthening, we're strengthened by hearing the proclamation of God's Word. We pray for each other. We encourage one another. Paul told the Philippians in Philippians 1.9, 119, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of God, what has happened to me will turn out to my salvation. Paul was saying it's the prayers of you Philippians, my fellow believers, that will enable me to endure this time of imprisonment. As a believer, you're never going to succeed in your Christian life without the fellowship of God's people. It's absolutely essential. All these, all these means are necessary and essential means for withstanding the temptations of Satan and the various trials of, of life. And if you neglect these, my friends, if you fail to pray, if you fail in the Word, if you fail to meditate on the Word, if you fail to assemble with God's people, then you're going to fail. You'll, you, you'll give in to temptation. You will not be able to resist the devil. You will become discouraged. And when trials come, you'll tend to want to give up. The Bible is clear, my friends. God's goal for us, for all of us, is to grow in our spiritual lives, to become spiritually mature. And he's pursuing that goal right now in each one of our lives. We're being transformed into the image of Christ. God's school to accomplish that transformation in your life and my life to bring us to spiritual maturity is trials and temptations. And the great promise of 1 Corinthians 10.13 is that there is nothing unique about our own experience with sin and temptation. Many Christians have faced the same kinds of things we're going through. They've faced the same kinds of trials. And God's grace is sufficient. It will be sufficient. We can overcome if we will avail ourselves 
of the resources, the means of divine grace that I've talked about that have been graciously, graciously granted to each one of us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together this morning and for the encouragement from the Word of God from the Apostle Paul. God, help us to take this to our hearts. Remind us every day of these important means of grace, of the Word of God, of prayer, and the fellowship of God's people. Help us not to neglect these things as we submit ourselves to you in the daily struggle we have with sin and the trials and difficulties that we're going to face. But we know that all these things are given to us. All things work together for good. We know this is your, your plan for our lives so that we can be conformed to the image of Christ. And so we thank you, God, for all that you're going to do. We pray in Christ's name.